0: It was anarchy in the sense that there was no, there were armed soldiers, but there was no government in the sense of, there was no mail service, there was no. What, was it dangerous for you there? Well, that's what we asked ourselves before we went because there had been a civil war going on.
1: Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Comers, and this is my show about the personal side. Of the intellectual journey yep this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey you know um i i guess i'm starting to rethink what i want to do with this show ultimately cognitive revolution and the things that i've been doing for the last 85 episodes they're kind of premised on where i was at when i was starting graduate school about three years ago a little bit a little bit less than that and to some extent, uh, you know, I, I definitely have really gotten so much out of these things. And to some extent, I've gotten so much out of them that I feel like they were representative of the growth that occurred for me during graduate school, but that I've kind of reached a point of diminishing returns on, you know, this whole personal side of the intellectual journey thing. Not that I don't find story these stories interesting for their own sake, but I, but I find that... You know, when I was originally doing them, you know, when I, when I started off doing the show, it was sort of from this perspective, of like, oh, well, I want to do the kinds of things that these people do. Therefore, I want to know what they were doing when, when they were my age. And I've kind of, to some degree, you know, answered those questions in the way that I, that I wanted to. And, and obviously not that I know everything, but I think I'm ready for reconceptualizing you know what what I'm doing why I'm doing it, and I want something that can grow with me from where I'm at now. Essentially, you know, let's say postgraduate school, and yeah, something that I can grow with into the future. So definitely, um, you know, if you followed the show this far, I, I appreciate it, and uh, keep an eye out for updates coming soon. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see what what uh, what happens there. But uh, this week's guest is Alan Fisk. Uh, Alan is a professor of anthropology at UCLA, and he's known for his unique brand of mixing approaches from psychology and anthropology. He is also the brother of Susan Fisk, who is a famous social psychologist and actually was one of the first guests on the show. And so in this episode, we talk about growing up in an academic family. We talk about Alan joining the Peace Corps to avoid the Vietnam draft, helping to eradicate smallpox in Congo, how travel and experiences abroad influenced his decision to become an anthropologist, the tension between doing good in, you know, the work that he does, which is embodied by his mother, and the, you know, the the concept of of sort of more academically working with ideas, which was his father's approach to things. We also talk about the commonalities between the ideas of uh, Weber, Piaget, and Ricoeur, and how that led to the development of uh, Alan's most influential theory. And uh, we also talk about the relationship between the fields of psychology and anthropology and how they've intertwined or or failed to intertwine throughout Alan's career. So at any rate, if uh, you have enjoyed this show... And if you, if, if, if you like this episode, I'd really appreciate it. If you consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter, uh, that is definitely the best way to support the show. You can find it at codycommerce.substack.com, uh, put your email down for a free subscription. It means a lot. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for listening. And without any further ado, here is Alan Fisk. So that's actually what I want to start off talking about. I want to talk about your your family holiday dinners, right? So you've got Thanksgiving together, you've got Christmas, whatever whatever you guys do, I don't know. But um I want to talk about your arguments, right? So you, as with any family, there are arguments that come up, but I imagine that your family arguments are an altogether different variety. You know, two of the most eminent scholars in social science, uh, you know, psychology, whatever you want to call it, uh, between, you know, you and your sister, Susan Fisk. And uh, your father was also a psychology professor. So tell me tell me what that family dynamic was like.
0: Well, uh, It was part of the culture of... The University of Chicago, which is perhaps the most intellectually intense place in the universe, and uh, w- what we did for fun was argue. Uh, we discussed ideas, and and the 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 that's what the dinner table was. Um, we told each other about what we've been doing during the day and and that sort of thing. Um, but then you know a great deal of it was discussion of ideas and. And that's what i did with my friends i mean we played basketball we played tennis we played bridge but a a lot of the time was spent uh, especially with my closest friend greg kafka um, who later became a philosopher uh, arguing about ideas and i like to joke and it's only half a joke that you know uh, in that community one of the main amusements is to argue and if somebody says something then you pick the opposite point of view and go from there
1: you know <laughs> uh and so that's where you guys grew up was was in Chicago was that for most of your sort of childhood and adolescence yeah in Hyde Park uh,
0: um right near the University of Chicago uh my father was a research uh, professor and i mean there, he was a professor but uh, you know uh he he was mainly a researcher and uh although he was a mentor to many graduate students who, who really uh admired him and, 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 uh, and, uh, loved him very much, I think, but he was, he was, I mean, if you wanted to say what, you know, how did I get into academic life? It's uh, my, my sister and I both followed my father who, who loved his work. And, um, you know, he was available for the family and he, you know, in the summers we went fishing together and did various things like that. But, um, We went camping and whatnot, but my father just, uh, you know, when nothing else was going on, I mean, he did, you know, he liked to make things and do repairs and things like that. And he, and he was a sailor. He just loved to sail, but he just so clearly loved his work. And, uh, that we thought, you know, my sister and I thought, wow, kind of a wonderful life, you know, go off to work with joy and come back with excitement and, uh, yeah, and my father said over and over again, you know, it's a it's a miracle that somebody wants to pay me to do what I want to do, what I would like to do anyway.
1: Do you remember any particularly heated philosophical arguments with your sister growing up where like you were describing one of you took one point and the other one took the the opposition to that? Was there any any, you know, points of 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 contention like that that you can recall?
0: Well, not so much with my sister, who's five years younger. Um, so, you know, by the time I left for college, she was getting old enough to argue with, I guess. But <laughs> before that, we weren't. Yeah. So, no, I remember with my friend Greg, we had long discussions about, you know, what are the bases for morality? If, if, if there's no God, then what, you know, what, what determines what's right and wrong? And, um, you know, that's something that I, it's, it's sort of the base, one of the bases for my life's research and my friend, Greg became a philosopher, a moral um, and political philosopher. So he pursued that <laughs> in, in philosophy.
1: Yeah. So you did your undergrad at the, uh, Department of social relations at Harvard. Is that correct?
0: Uh, Well, it was a program in social relations. It wasn't actually a department. The departments were the classical departments of psychology, anthropology, sociology, economics, political science, and so forth. But they had an undergraduate major in social relations, an interdisciplinary major. And um, I think it's a tragedy that they did away with that. But it was an experiment to see if they could integrate the social sciences um, and and at the undergraduate level, I think they, you know, they did pretty well. I'm I, I do not know the history of why they got rid of it. I don't even know exactly the history of how it was created. But it was maybe a creature of Talcott Parsons, in in to some degree, um, because he was kind of aiming to integrate the social sciences a bit. But um, there were great people there. Roger Brown was taught an amazing social psych course. Uh, and
1: um gordon alport for example
0: well i think alport might have retired by the time i was i was there but jerry bruner jerome bruner was there um and i took an amazing course from him and uh, yeah it was an exciting place to be still is of course
1: yeah did you have a a clear vision of what you wanted to do even at that time or did you have a sort of like oh this is the discipline that I'm going to pursue or what what were you where were you at sort of at that undergraduate time point
0: Well no I didn't have a clear position um in part because Susan and I had two amazing models of sort of meaningful lives I don't mean sort of we had two Models of amazing, meaningful lives—my, uh, our mother and our father—and our father w- was not that terribly interested in practical things. He was interested, or politics, or whatever, but he was, um, uh, you know, just deeply interested in the world of ideas and, in particular, sort of uh, epistemological things: how do you understand the, the nature of the person, and so forth. Um, and our mother, Barbara Fisk, was. Um, I guess the way to describe her would be to say which she was the ideal citizen. She was not a politician. She didn't want to run for office or hold office or anything like that. Um, but she was uh, a descendant in a long uh, line of, uh, well, of feminists. I mean, so um, our ancestors, on um, my mother's side, the female um, ancestors, uh, were leaders of the women's suffrage movement. And um, my mother was a leader of the, one of the uh, heirs to the women's suffrage movement, the League of Women Voters. And um, she uh, raised money from foundations and designed programs to um, make democracy work better and to make the communities better places to live. So, you know, she was very active in neighborhood organizations and in citywide organizations. She was on the Mayor's Commission on Human Relations that reviewed um, cases of of, uh, violation of fair housing ordinances and later reviewed all cases of uh, uh, accusations of police brutality. Um, And um, so she just did all kinds of things to make the the world, uh, the the community I would say, uh, a better place to live. She wasn't involved on the international stage. so it was, it was neighborhood Chicago and Illinois that was, you know, that were her realm, um, and you know, she read three newspapers and she just knew everything about what was going on in the world, and uh, and so that was a model of a real, and still is a model to me of a, a meaningful life, of a different, completely different kind of engagement, of trying to be a member of a community. And make uh, to be a leader without looking to looking for fame or distinction or public recognition, just trying to make the world better. Um, So she organized and funded, she designed and funded for many years, uh, you know, raised money to fund um, a program called a community education on law and justice to get uh, to help. the the poor the poorer neighborhoods in chicago understand the police work better with the police get the police work you know figure out how to work with the police instead of again being afraid of the police and seeing the police as the other side um and understand how the court system worked so if they got if somebody was arrested you know understanding how that worked and so forth and so on um anyway so it was not that's a long answer but um it was not clear to me whether I would go into academic life or into some kind of public service in the, uh, 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 an undefined kind. Yeah.
1: And then, so after undergraduates, you spent some time in the Peace Corps, and. In- in, in Bangladesh and in West Africa.
0: Yeah, I started out in Malawi and then the Congo. Yeah.
1: So tell walk me through that. What were you looking for? Did you find it? What were the long lasting impacts of that? Yeah. Was it, you know, inspired by your mom?
0: I graduated in 1968. And that's the that historical setting is crucial because at uh, the Vietnam War was on the draft, you know, there was uh, uh, Young men were being uh, conscripted, and um, there was uh, quite clear that you had to go to Vietnam or uh, go to jail or go to Sweden or go to Canada. (laughs) Um, And uh, along with, I don't know, about a quarter of my graduating class at Harvard, I signed a public statement that was published in the student newspaper, The Crimson, saying that I would not serve in Vietnam. I was and am a pacifist. Um, but it wasn't clear what would you know what I would do if I was if I was drafted. But you if you joined the Peace Corps, that was a deferment. That is, it didn't replace uh, being drafted, but it, it as long as you were in the Peace Corps, you wouldn't be drafted until you got out of the Peace Corps. <laughs> um, so I had you know I was interested in continuing graduate in continuing on to graduate school but it really wasn't possible. Um, but I also wanted to see what if I could do something make a difference in the world, not not simply understand the world but you know address some of the problems of the world. So I joining the Peace Corps was um, uh, on the one hand, better than going to jail or to Sweden. Um, Although Sweden's a nice place, but (laughs) if you went to Sweden, you didn't know if you'd ever come home again. And, um, but for me, it was really a chance to do in the international arena, the kind of thing my mother had, had always been doing and things that I had really done very little of. I was not in, I didn't, as a high school or college student do very much of that kind of thing at all um and um so i joined the peace corps and they invited me to go to malawi i had to look it up uh in an atlas to see where malawi was um and uh they trained us to do tuberculosis control so we did that for two years it was a really really interesting experience and many of us in that program were so Found that so meaningful and so engaging that we wanted to uh, continue somehow, but uh, the president of uh, the president of Malawi thought we were a bad influence on the youth because we were too liberal and we had beards and you know, uh, <laughs> so we couldn't stay in Malawi. But then the World Health Organization needed people; um, the smallpox eradication program needed people who could speak French and repair land rovers and, and had some public health experience to uh, help out with the smallpox eradication program in the Congo. So five or six of us went to the Congo, you know, for a couple of years.
1: Wow. So you were in the Congo for a couple of
0: years? Yeah. Malawi for two years, Congo for 18 or 19 months. Yeah.
1: What was that like?
0: Well, if you can imagine a place with no government where the
1: national government, I think there's a john Lennon song about that. Is there? Okay. Well, I think that's imagined. The uh, the the famous John. But anyway, yeah, the Congo, go ahead, go ahead. It was
0: anarchy in the sense that there was no, there were armed soldiers, but there was no government in the sense of, there was no mail service, there was no, you know, public, the, there were hospitals run by the government, but they didn't work very well. They didn't have any money. Um, there were supposed to be dispensaries scattered around in the local communities, but th- they were not you know, supplied with medicines, or the, the people working there weren't paid. And uh, uh, the roads were maintained only through uh U.S. Agency for National Development Program that contracted with the local missionaries. <laughs> To maintain the road, I mean, the government just didn't function.
1: Was it dangerous for you there?
0: Well, that's what we asked ourselves before we went because there had been a civil war going on, um, a, a, a terrible—well, more than one war. But the 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 United Nations peacekeepers had really brought peace to the area, and uh, we knew the Peace Corps was very conservative and cautious about student about. Uh, volunteer welfare and so they said if they said we thought if it's they say it's safe then it's probably safe um yeah i mean sometimes we went there were roadblocks sometimes and uh, you know you'd have drunken soldiers with automatic weapons so in that sense there was some danger but like many p- parts of the world uh, uh, for the peace corps today the biggest danger was you know that you'd be in an automobile accident and and there would be no good hospital to go to I mean, you know it wasn't it wasn't that we were likely to be shot.
1: Yeah, fair enough. And then, so uh, so that continued after Congo for uh, how long? Were you in the Peace Corps for in total?
0: Well, I was in the Peace Corps for about three and a half, or a little more, three and a half years, and then we essentially we had, uh, well, not essentially we had eradicated smallpox from the Congo, so it wasn't too interesting.
1: Stay. Congratulations, by the way, you, you and your
0: colleagues. Yeah, well, if I've done one meaningful thing in my life, I've played a tiny little part in the eradication of a terrible disease. Just before I left the Congo, as if I recall, and I may have the dates mixed up, but the first uh, draft lottery was held. And you have to understand that, you know, we could listen to Voice of America and BBC, but but it was pretty hard to find out what was going on in the world <laughs> from the Congo and or even from, you know, a small town or village in, in in Malawi. And um, but it looked like my. So there was a lottery and it looked like the number, my number, my my lottery number. I, I couldn't tell for sure, but it looked like maybe I would not be drafted anyway. So. There was nothing more that I thought was really important to do in the Congo. So I left there and traveled a bit in Europe, met my sister there for a little while, and um, and then went back to the States, Where and I discovered that, in fact, I was going to be drafted. Now, I had applied to be a conscientious objector, but because I am not a, a part of a religion, I'm not Quaker, Mennonite, amish, uh, I'm not part of any religion, I'm a complete atheist. I thought my chances of ha- having my draft board agree that I was a conscientious objector legitimately was were very, very, very small and um, although I'm a pacifist, I couldn't say that there was no circumstance in which I would ever uh, fight, you know i I, I I don't know what I would do if, you know, my family and my community were in danger of invasion, and, you know, I, but I you, you couldn't be classified as a conscientious objector just if you were only opposed to the Vietnam War or to certain wars. That was not the law required that you could only be classified as a conscientious objector if you were opposed to all war. And I said, frankly, in my statement that, well, I couldn't say that. So I thought the chance was zero. Of that. But um, in fact, the local draft boards were very autonomous, and they um they classified me as a conscientious objector. And now my Peace Corps experience didn't count toward uh so you had to do alternative service if you were a conscientious objector. And I was looking for something to do. And you could join the Peace Corps after being classified as a conscientious objector, and then it would count as your alternative service. Uh, But you couldn't. The fact that you'd been in the Peace Corps was of no use to you. It didn't count. Um, Anyway, I was looking around for what to do. And I. Well, to make a long story short, the war ended before I had to serve.
1: So then is there a line to be drawn from your travel experiences to becoming uh, an anthropologist, or to having that be your sort of home discipline,
0: Well, very much so. i I had imagined that if I went into academic life that I would uh, go into social psychology. But f- three and a half years in Africa had persuaded me that culture is you know absolutely important, absolutely essential for understanding human beings. And uh, this was before cultural psychology was born um, and cross-cultural psychology really didn't uh, take this the same view of culture as being an absolutely essential part of human behavior let's say and um, so I I applied to graduate schools and uh, um, well I should take one step back I applied to the to the Kennedy school while I was still in the Congo to the Kennedy school to because uh, I was considering g- going on in international development, public health, uh, something of that area, um, but I didn't get in. And uh, uh, and then uh, the next year I applied ag- again, but I also applied to social psychology programs and I got into Michigan, which was great, um, great program. But when I, Visited Michigan, it was clear that they just, at that time, although it was a wonderful program in social psychology, they didn't take culture seriously. And I, you know, living in Africa had persuaded me that you just couldn't understand human beings without understanding their culture. But while I was trying to decide what to do, <laughs> um, I had. Uh, been able to enroll in a wonderful program that still exists, the Master of Arts and Social Sciences program at the University of Chicago, which is a one-year master's program where you, in a very Chicago, uh, University of Chicago way, you kind of put together your own program and take whatever courses you want, pretty much. Um, And they're on the quarter system at Chicago. And then the winter quarter, middle quarter, I enrolled in a course in psychological anthropology with Robert Levine, taught by Robert Levine. And after about two weeks into that course, I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to do psychological anthropology. And the one of the very best places to do psychological anthropology was right there at the University of Chicago in the Committee on Human Development, which is this uh, interdisciplinary program in you know, social and Social and cultural anthropology, developmental psychology, cognitive psychology, um, evolutionary biology, kind of a a mix of all kinds of things. Um, And very much uh, with a history of developmental life, you know, lifespan, developmental psychology. So and I wanted to work with Bob Levine. So I applied to that and I got in and there I was. Yeah. But it was really Bob Levine that got me into it and sort of. Anyway, so I I joined the the Ph.D. program in the Committee on Human Development, but I spent my summers continuing to do so. I spent one summer uh, as a a, a cultural trainer for the Peace Corps training program, Um, another summer doing research for the Peace Corps. Um, And And then I spent uh, summer and fall, well, mostly, yeah, summer and fall, um, uh, joining the the World Health Organization Program for the Eradication of Smallpox in uh, Bangladesh. Um, And I I spent, uh, I devoted some weeks to uh, designing a, a, a public health program in the Central African Empire, as it was then. And that led, uh, I, I had no idea that it would, but it that led to an invitation to uh, be a country director for the Peace Corps. So the Peace Corps program is led in each country by a director and a staff of, you know, five or six professionals and uh, support staff. Um, and, uh, you know, the number of volunteers in the country uh, varies, but I, I, I went to uh, Ouagadougou to be Peace Corps country director in, in uh, what was then Opera Volta, is now Burkina Faso. And it was something I'd always wanted to do. And I had worked you know in, in public health um, and a little bit in international development at the village level, but I thought it would be really cool to design programs and manage them and, uh, at the national level. And so I thought that was just a great opportunity, so I put aside my 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 dissertation work. I had actually written a dissertation proposal on a plan to go to the northern part of Kenya and study the samburu um who were like the Maasai, but um they're they're pastoralists but uh, herd camels and so forth uh, and uh Just I had actually got funding for that from the Social Science Research Council and so forth. But then this other opportunity came up and I thought, oh, I'll do that. (laughs) And then I'll, the the plan was always to go back to academic life, except there was always this thought that if this turns out to be really exciting, working in international development, if the Peace Corps directorship uh, turns out to be wonderful, well, maybe I'll go that way.
1: And so what was the junction that that made that decision for you
0: well there were two things i think one is i was really good at problem solving so i I took on a program in burkina faso uh, that was just riddled with problems The, the peace corps program was in a disastrous state and i found good solutions to those problems and after two years left it in a much much better state but i was not a i was not a good leader i was not good at getting the, the staff behind me and uh um you know getting people motivated and f- committed to the to the solutions that i proposed and um you know i could see that that i could figure out the answers but not you know <laughs> but not uh, lead people to I mean, we did solve the problems, but we but I le- had a staff that was very discontent and didn't like me. And um, it, it was clear. And also, I didn't find it that it was meaningful to solve the problems, but I didn't like the management part. <laughs> I liked the doing of it in the village, but not the managing of it, which I thought I would like. I did like the sort of figuring out solutions and designing programs, but the the management itself, I did not like. And so I thought, this is not for me. This is not my calling. And uh, the the deal, I had got married, uh, uh, and the plan my wife and I had was, she was also a student in the the Committee on Human Development, was that after my Peace Corps directorship, uh, instead of going to Kenya, I would stay, we would stay in, in... Upper Volta as it was then, and do a fieldwork, do dissertation fieldwork there. And so we did.
1: Yeah, at this point, it seems like, okay, well, you've got this sort of on the ground experience of other cultures, places, interacting with, with people in a particular milieu. And you've also got this sort of intellectually rigorous background between Harvard Social Relations and your upbringing and the sort of, you know, environment of, of debating ideas and everything like that. When did that start to coalesce into something that you recognize as the germ of, of, of what would become your future work?
0: Well, the University of Chicago is this very interdisciplinary place where the, where department boundaries are considered sort of arbitrary administrative units. (laughs) Many faculty, the typical faculty member has, uh, they used to at least, I guess it's still true, have uh, uh, appointments in more than one department and students were encouraged to just, you know, take whatever courses seemed relevant. So I took courses in you know, in, in the Committee on Human Development where I was, but also in psychology and anthropology and evolutionary biology and so forth. Um, I was, I took a, uh, a developmental psychology course with a, with a psychological anthropologist, uh, Rick Schwader, Richard Schwader, and we read uh, Piaget's uh, The Moral Judgment of the Child. Now, that's a very confusing, disorganized book, as most of Piaget's books are. But, um, and the exact theory that he was offering was, uh, besides it being something about stages and so forth, was not clear. But I really was intrigued by his method, which involved playing marbles with kids and saying, well, supposing I do this, and can I do that? And, you know, it was kind of participant observation. Um, and I, so I was very impressed by that, but also quite intrigued by his idea of, if not, even if he was wrong that these were stages in moral cognition, the kinds of moral cognition that he was talking about seemed interesting to me. And then a while later, um, a member of my, uh, uh, d- uh dissertation committee, um, Don Levine told me I should read Max Weber. Um, and uh, he said, you can't really call yourself a social scientist if you haven't read Max Weber. <laughs> I said, okay. And there was a translation out of Economy and Society, which is this, I should pull it off the bookshelf, but it's this two-volume, enormous, whatever it is, 1,400-page Uh, or maybe it's longer than that.
1: Well, it better be if it's going to explain all of uh, economy and society. Do you know who did the first uh, English translation of Max Weber from German into English? Uh, Of of Protestant uh, ethic.
0: Well, yeah, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism had long been
1: translated. But that was Talcott Parsons who did the the original translation. Yes, he was one of the
0: translators. Yes, exactly. And I read that in college. Uh, And I read... In college I read bits of Weber that had been translated and I found him utterly confusing and just totally, I could not understand what he was talking about. Um, and I was like in despair that uh, I remember reading Weber and saying, what is he talking about? But although bits and pieces of of, of Weber's other work um, had been translated uh, the 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 entire uh, book uh, Economy and Society had not been translated until uh, I guess the 70s, and um, that book is an amazing book. But he didn't. He died before he finished, and so it's a very confusing book where he comes at what you think what seems to be the same topic and says something different about it. Six hundred pages after the first time, and then three hundred pages after that. It comes back to what looks like the same topic, but you can't quite tell for sure whether he's talking about something different um, and says something a little bit different. But it's kind of overlaps with what, you know, anyway, it's very hard to read. Um, and I am I guess it would have been a little easier if you read it in the German, but basically it's an unfinished work. But the main, although it covers many topics, the main topic is, or the, the most important topic, I think, is... Uh, forms of ideological legitimation so he said power uh political power is uh, always tries to legitimate itself and political power is not very stable until it does legitimate itself it has to uh give reasons for people to obey um and so he 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 wrote about the his famous ideas about uh, charismatic authority and uh, rational, legal, bureaucratic authority and traditional authority, and, and wrote extensively about the relationships between the ideology and the form of political organization. Well, as I struggled with that, talking to Don Levine about it every week or two, I had this kind of epiphany where I thought, wait a minute. These three forms of social organization, of political organization, and, and legitimacy, they line up with three of Piaget's uh, basic forms of moral judgment. And I said, how can that be? Because one is you know, talking to Swiss children, and the other is talking about historical processes in, in Asia and in Europe of, of political organization and uh and ideology i mean that seems like pretty different topics (laughs) Um, but to me they seem to line up and i so i i wrote a laborious uh, or i laboriously wrote a long essay trying to reinterpret uh weber's ideas of traditional authority and arguing that he was in when he talked about traditional authority he was really conflating two different things that were that were often co-occurred but were really different things and because i needed to make that argument to make the argument that that they they lined up with piaget and then uh, sometime later i was uh interested in a girl and, and dating her a little bit who was uh a Studying with Paul Ricoeur, um, an eminent philosopher and theologian at the the University of Chicago, and uh, as part of my effort to uh, uh, court her, (laughs) uh, I read a book that she recommended, um, (laughs) uh, called *The Symbolism of Evil* by Paul Ricoeur, which is a history of Western, of, of Christian theodicy. Now, theodicy is the, the the theological problem. If if there's a God who is all-powerful p- and all-good and all-knowing, why does he permit suffering? Why does he permit the innocent to suffer? You know? And so he wrote a history of uh, understanding of suffering and misfortune in, in Christianity over 2,000 years. And a completely different style book than than the ones I was used to in the social sciences. But it seemed to me, astonishingly enough, that there was a parallelism or congruence between the forms of theodicy, the forms of understanding and misfortune, and Weber's ideas of, of forms of political organization and, and their legitimating ideologies. And, and Piaget's ideas about the about kinds of moral judgment, and I thought, it, is this just a fantasy, or you know, because if these three things are, if these three in these three domains we're seeing the same types, there must be something very fundamental about these in the human mind and in human sociality.
1: And so that was the, the core that evolved into your 1992 paper, The Four Elementary Forms of Sociality, Framework for a Unified Theory of Social Relations.
0: Well, it evolved into the, the book, 91. Uh, and uh, I wrote the article because I was in a psych department that, at that point at University of Pennsylvania. They don't take books seriously, so I had to write an article.
1: <laughs> and, but, it, but it became your most cited um, article. That's true and and my
0: fieldwork uh to to you know come back uh, full cycle there my fieldwork was uh, explicitly intended to test the theory that i had formulated in 20 drafts of my <laughs> of my uh, uh, phd proposal um uh, that these were that you know that these three forms of of, of social coordination of sociality were were really universal and if they were really universal you ought to find them everywhere including in some little african village um and uh so i went to the field to see
1: if they were can you can you summarize the thrust of that theory then which is you know like at its core it's you know all human interactions the universal part of it is is that there are four relational models uh elementary forms of, of human relations. So those are communal sharing, authority ranking, equality matching, and market pricing.
0: Yes, the names the names are terrible. I wish I could change the names because they, they're they very misleading. But yes, that's, the theory was that there are four f- basic forms of uh, motivated uh, social coordination that people uh, use to coordinate nearly everything that they coordinate. And that they use them to uh, make moral judgments about their own and other people's behavior. That their emotions, that sustain social relations, are highly tied up with this. But that when people coordinate with each other, whether it's you know threshing grain or uh, writing, you know, doing coding, uh, or whether it's uh, uh, you know doing the dishes or uh, You know, making a decision about what movie to watch or whether how many children you want or whatever, anything you're doing socially, these are the ways that people do it. Um, And in a nutshell, I had three of these ideas uh, uh, developed from uh, Piaget and Weber and Ricoeur, and that I was looking for to see if they were there in the village. And they really were uh although i was acutely aware of the risk of you know self-fulfilling prophecy or just seeing what i wanted to see but they really were there except there was some something else that didn't fit and i couldn't shoehorn. i tried and tried to shoehorn it into those three and i couldn't and that led to the formulation of the 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 fourth relational model equality matching um based on my fieldwork
1: yeah so you you sent me a, a paper in our email correspondence that you recently, uh, is, is, is coming out soon. And it's basically a description of your system for research. Your uh, You call it your epistemological strategy, which I love. Uh, it's the reorders uh, epistemological strategy. What is that? And and maybe, you know, if, if there's a mapping onto the sort of trajectory that we just talked about.
0: Well, my epistemological strategy was influenced very much by uh Ethology, I was very captivated by uh, reading the ethologists in uh, a little bit in high school, but especially uh, uh, in college, although there were no courses in ethology at Harvard. <laughs> I had to get Roger Brown to teach me a reading course, give me a reading course in it. <laughs> um, but the, but the, the the model of ethology is observing naturally occurring behavior and then trying to uh, observe patterns and... and uh, and then doing kind of field experiments, and then, um, you know, eventually if, if need be lab ones, but basically uh, a kind of natural, being a naturalist, observing what occurs, what you see around you. And so I was very influenced by that. Um, and the epistemology that I developed, and I can't really say beyond, the lorenzian Tinbergian influence from mythology—exactly where it came from—but it's a, quite a simple idea: is that you try to describe patterns or regularities. What mathematicians and physicists, I came to realize only quite recently, call symmetry, which is, you know, pattern invariance over various kinds of transformations. Um, but looking for patterns, looking for regularities in the natural in naturally occurring processes and events, and then when you try to describe those using that description as the basis for researching, searching again for other examples of the phenomena, uh, the phenomenon that you're interested in, or multiple phenomena, and then taking those new instances that seem to be, although you're not sure they are, examples of the same phenomenon, observing them in in some kind of natural uh, setting, right? As they occur without your intervention, Um, although just observing them can affect them, but anyway, uh, observing them and then trying to rewrite the description to get a better description and then using that improved description to go search out more cases and then uh, look for the patterns you see and try to improve the description. So it's a recursive process of observation, description, searching for new cases. I, I use the, the very clever term "researching, <laughs> uh, and then re-describing and researching and rediscribing and researching. So that's the basic idea. It's a very inductive process and a recursive one of sort of looking to see if you can find these patterns over and over again in in new cases and using the new cases to understand uh, uh, what the phenomenon is. Um, And at the same time, while you're doing this, looking very carefully at the anomalies. So every time you come to a case that doesn't seem to fit, instead of sort of pushing it aside and, you know, barging full speed ahead stopping to look carefully at the anomalies and say, okay, what's going on here? Why doesn't this fit? Because the anomalies are informative. Um, And then trying to do this, integrating various levels of explanation, if you want to talk about that. So I'm interested in the, the ways that people coordinate socially but to understand that, I think I have to understand how children become able to do that, how humans evolve the capacity and the dispositions to do that. How do how does the body do it? How do hormones and and uh, the functional anatomy of the brain you know how is that involved in that? Um, so, trying to uh, integrate, you know, you although you my focus has always been on the call it the social and cultural psychology of this um, but the account that I'm giving it of those processes has to make sense in terms of natural selection uh, you know the biology of the brain and and so forth and so on um, and the developmental processes in children because children start out not able to participate or do much and then they become rapidly amazingly able to you know, be social um so you have to integrate those different levels of explanation um and so you need to stop constantly and say okay but what do you know what do people in developmental psychology know about this and what's known about the hormones and how they work and even though that's not your main interest or your main focus well i'm interested in everything but um You need to try to develop an account that makes sense in terms of all of these processes together, even if you don't have an explanation for the whole integrated system, at least it has to be consistent with what's known from, you know, about these other processes. So you're constantly looking at that. You're constantly reading about that or going to ask experts about the the relevant processes or whatever. But it's a very inductive process, So, and it's not what anybody else really does. It's certainly not what psychologists do, which is they sort of sit at their desk or read papers and come up with a theory and then start running experiments. Um, it's not even what anthropologists do anymore, although some did in the early, very earliest days of anthropology, because um, anthropologists, cultural anthropologists are not interested in big theory anymore. Um um, but it's what seemed to make sense to me. So observe the world, describe it, then go looking to see if your description works in other situations, in other cases, and then when you look at those other cases, improve your description, and then use that to go look for more cases. And that's that's what I, I devoted six years to uh, writing the book, Structures of Social Life. Uh, that's what it consisted of, was looking at one domain after another and trying to refine my ideas improve my description of what these four relational models were by looking at you know one one how do these show up in the organization of work how do they show up in moral judgment how do they show up in the formation of groups and how do they show up in um, exchange or transactions in material things and so forth
1: yeah. So that's something that I'm kind of interested to, yeah, to get your perspective on is that you have spent your career straddling the sort of line, the the demilitarized zone between anthropology and and psychology. And so how has that relationship between those two disciplines changed over what you've seen in your career? And has... Is there stuff that we're still missing out on in broad swathes? Like we really have left something on the table that like there was p- potential for, for, for bridging there that we just have, have yet to really sort of figure out how to do?
0: Well, there's enormous potential for bridging in. In the early days of anthropologist anthropology and early days of psychology, there were many practitioners who were both, and you know, you couldn't tell which one they were and nobody cared um but they grew apart to a large degree although um there were people in the culture and personality field basically people using psychoanalytic theories in anthropology um who kept those fields connected but if you look at the great anthropologists they were all psychologists too (laughs) you know um and uh they weren't separate disciplines but they grew up you know, as as the disciplines became more specialized, they, you know, that wasn't specific to anthropology and psychology. They just people became very specialized. Um, but then, the huge change that I have seen in my academic life is that when I was in graduate school, was the end of an era, and and the new era was starting, in which, while Archaeologists remained interested in uh, in science and the canons of science, trying to make their field scientific. And of course, biological evolutionary anthropologists were very much uh, scientists. Cultural anthropologists gave up on science. In my view, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. But they became uh, not only uh, discouraged by, but uh, hostile to science. and. Uh, you know, 20 years ago or so, I don't have the date, but the American Anthropological Association rewrote its charter to take the word science out, where its charter had originally been something about advancing the scientific study of humankind. The people were so anti-science that they took that out of the charter. So cultural anthropology, to my great sadness, um, has ceased to be... uh, governed by the canons of science. It's become an interpretive and critical uh, enterprise, a political enterprise. um, And and, um, although I agree with the politics, I think it's sad that they've given up on science. And that has left me um, happily stranded (laughs) as one of the very few cultural and psychological anthropologists today, not the only one, but one of the few, who's still trying to do science. And as a result of that, I don't publish in anthropology journals. I don't put, I don't have chapters in edited volumes published by anthropologists because they don't they have no interest in what I do. They don't they don't critique it. It's just too far out there to be even worth engaging in. They don't they don't read my work and they don't care about it because what I do is science. And in their view, science is wrongheaded and and a waste of time and probably immoral.
1: How much do you blame Clifford Geertz for that sort of revolution in, in into now we're no longer going to longer do science, we're going to do is he, is he symbolic of it so to speak, or is he, um, you know, was was he the catalyst for it?
0: Well, he was one of the catalysts. Uh, it would have happened without him, but he's such a brilliant writer and so persuasive as an observer that he was a model of how to do non-scientific interpretive anthropology and it would have happened without him, but it, but he certainly became a a, a leading light for a while. And then other people, other people have since moved on beyond that, but Yeah. No, he was hugely important. And I love reading Gertz. We should all read Gertz. He was
1: was a Chicago guy, you know, like that's your, that's your, that's your kin right there.
0: Well, he left Chicago before I got there, but yes, he was very much a Chicago guy. And Chicago was Chicago and Michigan, uh, but very much Chicago was a place where this revolution was occurring, um, where cultural anthropologists and psychological anthropologists were throwing out the, the, the whole scientific enterprise as, as wrong-headed and colonial and hegemonically exploitive and all kinds of bad stuff. And um and anyway, hopeless and, and just wrong headed. Yeah. So that would so that that's been an absolutely huge, huge change in anthropology. Anthropology, cultural anthropology is one of the well, it's the only social science where the 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 majoritarian point of view is uh that it, well it's That uh, you can't do a human, you can't do the science in the human field, right? So, economists and political scientists, um, and sociologists, and uh, so forth are, for the most part, you know, the vast majority of them are trying to do some kind of science, uh, but not in cultural anthropology. Now, the other subfields of anthropology, as I say, the archaeology subfield and the 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 subfield that's concerned with human evolution and the biological adaptations to environments and that sort of thing and primatology those are very much sciences Um, so in my own department in every anthropology department you find uh, both scientists and non-scientists but the but the cultural anthropologists you very rarely find a scientist anymore
1: yeah no i i I totally agree at at first approximation cultural anthropology and its current iteration is essentially a humanities and very proudly so that's part of the reason why as much as i absolutely love anthropology and get so much out of it and so inspired by it i don't want to be an anthropologist or more specifically i don't want to get a degree in it um because i'd rather have my official training be in a field that's at least ostensibly scientific
0: but but i have to say to interrupt you cody yeah the problem is at least anthropologists go out in the field and look at things, and they 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 don't sit in the they don't sit in the lab or at their desk and try to figure out the way the world works. They go observe, and they devote lots of time to doing. They learn the language, they learn the history, and 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 uh, you know they, they learn uh, deeply about a particular region, a community, or whatever, um, and then they go you know immerse themselves in it not watching from a distance but doing participant observation being a part of the processes and and that's absolutely crucial because people can't tell you what you want to know about human behavior (laughs) you have to you can ask them and they can try to help they'll try to help you but people can't explain how their minds work or how their societies work they don't know um and so if you don't observe, you're never going to find out.
1: I couldn't agree more. Um, that is, I, I, I mean, uh, that's part of the reason why I don't plan to continue as a psychologist is that because I think that the going out there and seeing how people actually do things in a, an actual specific setting is so important that the fact that the whole study of psychology is doesn't include that essentially that's a deal breaker
0: the problem is there's no home for it anymore there's no home for for observing as a scientist uh in the in the field of social and cultural anthropology now if you're digging up old cities and old campsites yes there's a home for that um and if you're studying you know bonobos or or uh, capuchin monkeys yes but not if you're studying how does this community function today um, sociologists occasionally do participant observations still, it's called the Chicago School of Sociology, um, but mostly they crunch big numbers and, uh, or they, or they develop theory like Talcott Barson sitting in an office, you know.
1: Yeah, it turns out that uh, you know, discovering the true nature of of human society behavior actually quite difficult, quite a difficult enterprise, methodologically, epistemologically, uh, theoretically. It, it, it turns out to be much harder than Talcott Parsons at all uh, uh, thought it might be.
0: Well, Parsons, I think, thought it was difficult, but he, yeah, but if it weren't difficult, Cody, it wouldn't be any fun, you know. <laughs> the, the The more challenging it is, the more the more fun it is to struggle with it and, and see how you can make some headway,
1: right? Well, you know, this is neither here nor there. Um, but what I came into my PhD program wanting to do was I had this idea called um, the intuitive anthropologist. And the basic idea is that in psychology, we have this notion called the intuitive psychologist. And it's basically this, this, this concept that what we're doing when we try and interpret another person's behavior we try and make sense of their actions is essentially an informal version of what academic psychologists do formally and we call this theory of mind empathy mentalizing mind reading etc and uh it sort of seemed to me that it's like okay well that's one way of conceptualizing how that works but of course psychology is just one of you know many disciplines interested in human behavior this is a fact that's often unappreciated by psychologists, and the the notion is that the the premise of anthropology sort of comes from a fundamentally different place. This notion of well, you actually have to go out there, do the difficult work of learning someone's language, living you know in the the proverbial tent for a, a year in the middle of the village, and that's how you get to know people who come from a different background. So the the anthropology thing is is suited for. You know, in psychology, we think of as outgroup members, whereas the the theory of mind, um, you know, intuitive psychology thing, is, is is geared towards you know understanding people have a, share a certain commonality with us, or, or, or you know, to some degree, in group members, and uh, that was the sort of idea that I wanted to um, you know uh, bring out and that sort of stuff and. Couldn't get a single person to buy it here at Oxford, so I ended up having to ditch that uh, idea for something much more tractable. But that was initially what I wanted to—the uh, idea that I sort of wanted to to build towards. Well, it's
0: an <laughs> interesting idea.
1: Yeah. yeah, evidently not enough to the people who mattered in my department. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, that, this has been fun to talk and to to hear, you know, about some of your early career experiences and and all that sort of stuff. So thanks for taking the time to chat today.
0: Well, thank you. It's an honor to. Talk to you, and uh, I really appreciate
1: the opportunity. That was my conversation with Alan Fisk. If you enjoyed it, please consider checking out my Substack newsletter. That's uh, at codycommerce.substack.com. And uh, if you like this episode, a couple other ones, take a look at. Definitely the one with Susan Fisk, uh, Alan's sister. She's amazing. And that was uh, super interesting to hear her story. And, And yeah, so there's that one. And then also... Dan Everett, who's another anthropologist that I love. There's definitely been several anthropologists that are that are great on the show, but that that one, he he's he's someone else who who really tries to bridge the gap between anthropology and other fields. In his case, mostly linguistics and everything. So uh, yeah, definitely take a look at those episodes. I also want to give a big shout out to Emily Chen. She is an RA in Rebecca Sachs' lab at MIT, and she's come on to the show as a producer and editor. Um, and uh, she's been a huge help. I'm looking forward to continuing to work with her. You will definitely be hearing more from her in the future. And uh, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back here with another episode of Cognitive Production.